0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And if you have not yet read Night of the Living Res* by Morgan Talty, you need to go get this book now. And the thing is, it's sort of a novel. It's sort of stories. We're going to talk about the structure, but Morgan, I am so, so excited to finally meet you. I'm sorry we're just doing it over Zoom. But you're on the road. You're off... At a convention somewhere, right?
1: I am. I'm in Rhode Island right now for okay. the uh, New England Book Awards.
0: Okay, but you're based in Maine, and you live in a in a town that's what not even three thousand people. I didn't even think that was possible anymore. But can we talk? Yeah, about...
1: yeah, it's pretty small. So I live. <laughs> okay. um, so right now, I live in Levant, Maine, uh, which is kind of near Bangor. And I don't know what the population is. It's probably like what you said, like three thousand. But I grew up on the Penobscot Indian Nation and. Um, I mean, that was an even smaller population, maybe like six or seven hundred people. So very, very tiny.
0: And how far is the Penobscot Reservation from where you live now?
1: It's like a 30 minute drive. OK, Yeah. so
0: you're basically home.
1: Yeah, I'm still in, you know, Penobscot territory.
0: Can we just talk about what your life was like as a kid?
1: I was actually born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I lived there until I was six. And then my mom took me and we moved to the Penobscot nation and I grew up there from six until I was 18. And, um, my mom was like, I don't want to live here anymore. After we grad, after I graduate high school and she moved, she moved to Orono, which is just, I mean, it's a 15 minute drive from the island, but yeah, I mean, my childhood was as good as it could be. Um, and, you know, growing up on the res with my mom and, um, family and, and friends, you know, I just, it's just something I miss deeply. Um, even given, I think a lot of the terrible, you know, things that, you know, I witnessed as a child, you know, um, you know, it's still, you know, I'm always reminded, I think it's the Jane Austen quote. It's like, one does not love a place the less for having suffered in it, unless it's been all suffering, nothing but suffering. And I just deeply love that place in that, in that community.
0: And you spent a lot of time running around outside as many of us did. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts in quite a wooded place as well. And, you know, you run around and you hit each other with sticks and you try not to get caught by your parents hitting your smaller (laughs) siblings with sticks, but there you have it. It's that moment where you have a lot of freedom. You're out and about, you're doing your thing, but also you have said in previous interviews that you were not really the biggest reader or person who wanted to write so much either.
1: No, I mean, I, you know, growing up, I didn't care for reading and writing. I think With the exception of like when the book Holes came out, I think like everybody was obsessed with that. And even the Harry Potter movies, uh, books, it wasn't until um, I had seen like the first few and then like they started coming out and were popular, I started reading them. But like other than that, like I hated reading, I hated writing. Throughout high school, like I just didn't do well in high school just because there were a lot of things in my life that impeded my ability to. To do well, I just didn't really care, and it wasn't until I went to so before I went to Dartmouth, I went to Eastern Maine Community College for three years um, because I had such bad grades. Not even the state school of Maine would accept me. Where I now teach as an assistant professor, which is kind of like funny. It's really you know I always grew up as feeling like a storyteller, like always loved telling stories, um, you know, retelling stories of things that had happened. And I never knew what to do with my life, and you know, when I got to college, and I sort of like was like, well, I can, I, I felt as I, I fell in love with books, I fell in love with reading. And I was like, I can do my storytelling, you know, in, in this way, in this sort of um, Western, you know, structure of storytelling. And I just pursued it. And, you know, everybody was like, oh, you're very talented. And I never believed them. But I kept doing it anyways, um, probably because even if I was really bad, it was still just the only thing I was going to do that started me on my journey. So I really started reading and writing when I was about, 18, I, I guess. And I'm 30, 31 now.
0: Night of the Living Res is spectacular. And I was rooting for every single character in this book. And even even the dude where you're probably thinking you were rooting for him. Well, I was rooting for him until he did the thing that he did. And then I was like, yeah, let's hunt him with the sun. <laughs> and I'm dancing around spoilers because more people need to read Night of the Living Res. But David and his mom and Paige and fellas, he's hysterical. I don't know if he knows he's hysterical, but he's hysterical. We're going to get to all of these people. But I was so deep in this book. And I've heard, you know, we've had lots of conversations, obviously. We're booksellers. We have lots of conversations about these things. With some people saying, oh, no, it's a story collection. Absolutely, definitively, story collection, boom. And other people saying, oh, no, no, it's a novel. It's a novel. I think you're sitting in this very wonderful new space that it's linked stories, yes, but you're doing something here that's really interesting and, and the stuff that's missing, right? The things David doesn't say to his mother, the things his mother does not say to him, the things that Paige doesn't say to either of them. I want to focus on the three of them because I feel like they're really the heart of it. And we're going to get to Fellas in a second because dude is very funny and he will pop in. But he is sort of part of a slightly separate conversation. But I love these characters. I really love these characters. And they are difficult and they are edgy and they're not having always a great time of it but they're also not having the worst time of it either. Can we talk about the structure? Can we talk about how you got in? Because this is not auto-fiction. There are bits, sure, that you take from your life, but it's not auto-fiction.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not auto-fiction. I mean, there are, um, you know, stories that have, you know, very similar things that happened to me. You know, I always, and then there are stories that are completely fictionalized. And, you know, I think, I think every story I write has a bit of reality in it. You know whether it's an image I've seen or you know something I heard. You know Earth Speak, for example, where Phyllis and and David or D or D try to rob the tribal museum for the valuable root clubs. (laughs) All of that is fiction, except for the opening line where they come across the top of the hill and they're like um, fog covered above the pine trees, like fall webworms and the crooks of brown branches. And that was something I wrote after having seen that driving home one day. So that was a like a real factual thing. Um, and then you look at a story like safe Harbor and all of that up until the point where D's mother has a seizure is is true. You know, my mother, when she was alive, suffered from severe depression and anxiety and, mm-hmm. and alcoholism. And she would often go to these places, crisis stabilization units um, to, to rest and to, and to get away. And I'd go up and visit her and have coffee and, you know, color and watch TV and eat lunch okay. and, and bring her cigarettes. That was a big okay. thing. Bring her cigarettes. Um, I went there one time, and I saw her have that seizure. and it you know, if anybody's ever seen somebody have a seizure, it's a terrifying thing. And so when I got home that day, I wrote the whole thing out as best mm-hmm. as I could remember it. you know, the guy with the black boxes walking around, all of that stuff was real until I decided to push it further. Um, and I won't spoil it, but you know, after D leaves, you know, so there is autobiographical elements in here, but when it comes to the structure of the book, you know, like I was really dead set on. Writing short stories, like mm-hmm. writing short fiction and staying true to that. And the, the, you may have heard this, and, I, and maybe some other listeners have heard this, but the very first story I ever wrote for the book what well, was the title story Night of the right. Living Reds. And I wrote that in 2015. And then in 2017, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a story collection.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had a couple stories told from David's point of view. So I was like, all right, you know, I always start with a framework. I'm like, all right, we'll just move chronologically. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with David as a boy, and we'll end with him as a young adult and Night of Living Res. And I did that. I, I wrote stories where he got older and older and older and older. And I wound up with like 15, you know, 15 David stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I cut them down to 10, sort of like the normal number for a story collection. And I looked at it and I was like, Oh, my God, this is so, so bad. Like, this is a terrible <laughs> book. Um, it, it was just so bad. Because it was like, you know, you pick up a story collection, and it's like you a traditional story collection. And has different characters, perhaps mm-hmm. different settings, even perhaps different themes. And so it wasn't that. And then you get an interconnected story collection that has the same characters. And there tend to, tends to be something that's at work there. Um, something that I don't think we can really, or I can articulate, so to speak. Um, so I was like, well, whatever, this book failed. I'll move on to something else. And I went and wrote um, the story Burn because I'd heard a story about a native guy getting his hair frozen in the snow And I tried to write it as nonfiction, but I just like couldn't do it. Um, There's so many paradoxes and contradictions about this, this image. And so I was like, I write it as fiction. And I'd been hearing this name in my head, Phyllis, you know, for months, months. And I don't know where it came from. I think subconsciously it has something to do with like, Ferris Bueller's like that movie or whatever, like (laughs) Ferris Phyllis. I don't know. I don't know if that's how it came out. So I was like, all right, well, Phyllis will be the guy who gets his hair stuck in the snow. And so I wrote this story, and and I never named the character, um, but right. I knew I had to. There's a for for rhythm purposes of this one specific line in the story that goes when Fella says, "Get me out," D the Fella said, "D, get me out." Like the name had to be said there for the mm-hmm. for the rhythm of that that sentence. And I was like, "Crap!" I was like, "What is his name?" And I just put D the letter D in as a placeholder until mm-hmm. finally the story was ready to be sent out, or I felt it was ready, and. I was like, all right. Well, I have to name him, and I was convinced it had to start with D. And I was like, D what? I was like, Darren, Daryl, Devin. Um, but then I was like, I kept saying D D D D, and I was like, Oh, what if he? What if he goes by the name of D? And I put two E's at the end, and I was like, Wait, is this David all grown up? And I was mm-hmm. like, It is. And I was like, All of a sudden, everything that that failed book came back to life, mm-hmm. and now there is this central question of what happened? Like, how did we get from this good natured boy, you know, who's running through these woods to this, you know, drug addicted um, individual who's estranged from his family and has no family besides fellas. And so I started writing all these D and fellas stories, um, you know, get me some medicine, um, yeah. half-life, all of them uh, in a field of striped caterpillars. And until I had a bunch of them and I looked at all my David stories and I looked at all my D stories. And I was like, All right, what we're working with here is not some like overarching plot, so to speak. Like, Mm -hmm. we're dealing with a very intellectual plot that I feel is like buried under the surface and is something that is not like the main point of the book, but it's nonetheless like I saw it as like nagging the reader. And so I was like, All right, well, I need to nurture that. I was like, I can't turn this into a novel. Mm -hmm. Agents asked me to. They're like, If you turn it into a novel, we can sell it. Cause you know, agents here, story collection and it goes in one ear and out the other. So I was like, I wonder how do I do this? And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to do, I was like, what would happen if it just had like a David story followed by a D story followed by a David story D mm-hmm. story. And I did that. And I was like, Oh, this looks really cool. And, and, and it worked. And, um, so I kept it that way. Um, then the, then the thing became, it's like, okay, well how do I make it? So these stories aren't implicating themselves in a larger, Narrative arc, right? Like, Mm -hmm. get a reader who's like, "Why isn't this just a novel?" Because that happens, I think, a lot with interconnected story collections. People are like, "Why didn't they turn this into a novel?" And I'm sure people have said that about my book too. But Mm -hmm. for me, I was like, I have to suggest that these stories belong to some type of arc, and you know that that came very carefully. You know, being very deliberate with word choice and stuff. You know, in Safe Harbor, you know, there's the the accident at the at the near the end. Spoiler, sorry, folks. D's leg is severely hurt. And then later in, in Earth Speak, you know, Phyllis asks D to drive and D goes, I hate driving. And I think the exposition reads, um, I scratched my leg or something. So just this like subtle little hint, you know, going back. I kept it that way. I kept the story separate. Um, the only story that speaks across the stories is Half Life, um, which was actually my attempt at trying to turn it into a novel. <laughs> like that was like, I think my <laughs> attempt. Um, okay which failed miserably, but nonetheless still turned out to be its own thing. I came to this structure, this, this format sort of by chance, but I think also by just respecting like the notion of story, like not trying to like, like a lot of, writing fails because writers fail to listen to what the story wants to do. You know, when we encounter resistance in a story, it's our fault. Um, It's because the story wants to do something else. And it's like, if we give in, the story will give back. And so that's what I really did with this book. And it wound up with the the structure that people like or don't like.
0: (laughs) I happen to love it, so we can just start there. But I also, what I really love in each All right, let's call them stories for the moment, just lack of a phrase to describe. I mean, you you can have the same response, actually, when you're talking about Candy House or Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. And I have a terrible habit of shortening titles, so we will drop those titles in the show notes because I do it all the time. But the idea that you are ultimately always writing about hinge moments and to be that invested in that bit of quiet space, that open space that you have, it's really kind of great. And yeah, readers are supposed to bring whatever they're going to bring to a story, right? Like we, not one of us picks up a thing and starts reading without bringing our own, whatever it is. But I don't necessarily need to read about people who are just like me to be really dug in on a story and in a jar. So this is a story you gave Rick Bass when you were studying with Rick Bass. And that is a creepy story. But to also see elements of that story pop later in the book, I was just kind of like, okay. And we're going to talk about the creepy before we talk about the funny, because funny is actually harder than creepy. But I just want to talk about In a Jar for a second, because we sort of meet everyone. And it's what, the second or third story
1: in the book? Second story.
0: I want to talk about the creation of that story specifically, In a Jar, and and sort of how it became the thing that we're reading in Night of the Living Res now.
1: Yeah, so In, in a Jar, I did draw a lot on of- on my personal experience with, with Mm -hmm. that story. Um, you know, like I said, in in early on in this interview, you know, my mom took me and we moved to the Penobscot nation when I was six. And, you know, that's sort of David's same story in, in the book. You know, my sister didn't show up at that, at that time, you know, I met my mom's boyfriend, um, my stepdad, who was a medicine man. And I sort of like picked and choose from some sort of like, just moments in my life you know mm-hmm. when my sister was she was on the mohawk reservation she was dating this this man and uh one morning they woke up and outside under the steps was because um, she smoked and i don't think he did so he she was always outside smoking and under the steps was a jar full of corn and hair and teeth mm-hmm. and um uh, the guy thought it was a woman who was jealous that my sister was dating, and then it was supposed to be a curse or something. So I was like, "Oh, that's cool. Let's bring, let's bring that in here." And my my sister, you know, had a, a miscarriage at one point in her life, and mm-hmm. you know that that came into the into that story. You know, I used it in, in a particular way. Um, there was a burial for the child that I didn't attend. You know, the, the book ends mm-hmm. in that way. The other thing, you know, the knocking on the walls. Were, were real things, you know, that we, we mm-hmm. grew up hearing the baby teeth marks. My sister says she does not remember this, but I remember it. Something bit her like some, I don't know what, or maybe, maybe she did it to herself and she was trying to scare me and she doesn't remember, you know, but I remember it. And so I put that in there. And so I really built this story around, um, you know, I think a lot of personal experiences that span so many sort of like so much time and, mm-hmm. Um, it was in a way, I think, of sort of like getting that out of the way so I could write the stories, um, you know, detached from specific real life moments and instead use, you know, draw on a feeling of, you know, lived experience to, you know, come up with some type of um, incident or moment. Um, but that's really how In A Jar came, came to be. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it was like a good story, like, because I was still kind of like, I don't know what a good story is. And right, I, right, right, right. When I sent it to Rick Bass, um, I think it was the third story I'd sent him that semester when I was studying with him. Yeah, And he was like, dear Morgan, he's like, great jumping Jehoshaphat. This is, um, he's like, <laughs> this this is, you know, and he was, he was just had nothing but praise about it. And right. he was like, we need to get this to this editor and have him publish it. And the editor looked at it and he's like, no, that editor has now been, um, a huge champion of, of my short fiction and stuff. So it's always funny how people react, but his mm-hmm. excitement enthusiasm for that story, I was like, oh my God, that's how it really came to be. You know, as like I wrote it as part of like, you know, going back to, you know, the story collection, you know, let's start with David as a boy and move all the yep. way to him as an adult. And, you know, that that's how I approached it.
0: So part of why I bring up that story, though, is it puts you in the world immediately. Yeah. I had the lay of the land immediately. And what I love about great short stories Um, is that you get the depth and breadth of a novel in 22 pages, however long that ran, (laughs) double-spaced. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I don't know what the word count is. I did have a moment of, okay, we've got some serious poverty happening. We've got a lot of isolation. Where is this going? And one of the things I really appreciate about your work is that you give us moments to breathe. You give us the humor, you give us the joy, you give us the idea that this family is still invested in each other, but man, there are times where they just don't like each other. I mean, you have a sister, you know what I'm talking about. So recreating that emotion and that emotional payoff, which two are not always the same thing, and your characters and giving them space to do what they need to do. I mean, you've said it earlier in this conversation where you were like, well, you can't really force the story to do what the story is going to do. So how many drafts did it take us to get where we are in this collection, in this order?
1: One draft. I just sat down and did it. Oh, really? Um, okay. okay. No, no. I, um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it took, you know, I was telling somebody, you know, there's probably in a folder, you know, 30 or 40 failed stories. Um, You know I mean? Like the blessing tobacco, for example, right. I have, at least four different variations of that story that are widely different, um, but Mm -hmm. nonetheless are still about David and Grammy. I would never have been able to write The Blessing Tobacco if I hadn't written those four failed stories, Um, which is why I don't think there's ever any failure in writing. Well, the only failure that comes about is when you don't write, and that's the only type of failure there is. So lots of drafts. I mean, you know, I got lucky with some stories. Um, In a Jar was pretty easy to that one came out pretty easy. Um, the first three or four pages were the ones I revised the most over, you know, the course of the years earth speak. I got in pretty much one go, you know, over. Um, yeah. You know, like even that final line was, um, like I, I I got, I didn't do any major revisions. Um, the name means thunder took me probably two years to get right. All of them went through so many different renditions and, Um, even structure, order of structure, you know, I used to have it originally as, you know, it opened with image R, but I decided to start it second because I thought burn would be a little bit more appealing um, and shorter because people like to read short things these days.
0: (laughs) But also burn pulled me in. I mean, I was laughing out loud. I was just like, who is this dude? I like the juxtaposition though, quite a lot because, you know, here you are being very funny about a pretty horrible situation. I mean, this, honestly, if D hadn't come along, fellas would be dead in a snowbank, so. <laughs> and then, you know, this idea, too, that hair is really, really, really important in Indigenous communities. And so here you are, and already I'm just kind of like, all right, who is this dude? Who is this salty dude, and what is he doing? Because... This is really interesting. And I want to talk about representation for a second, because here you are laying everything out. There is addiction in this book. There is generational trauma. There is generational poverty. There is a lot that happens. And there's some very other specific stuff that I am leaving out completely, because people should experience that for themselves when they read it. You kind of got to show what's in the world in order to understand what's in the world. And yet, I'm sure there have been people who've said, but why are you letting it all hang out?
1: Yeah, I mean, people, I think people have said that in in in, in different ways. And for me, it's just like, I'm going to write what I have experience with in some way, um, right. whether it be, you know, autobiographical moments around which I frame a fictional story, or, you know, something I make up completely, but nonetheless have, you know, stakes in. And, you know, I didn't set out to write a book that was going to be like, this is, you know, I, I always, I don't have a copy of the book, but on the book, it says something about like, you know, this is a book about what it means to be Penobscot in the 21st century. And yeah. I know, and, and like, I always say every event I go to, I find a place to say that. So this is where I get to say it on, on this interview. Oh yeah, please, you know, please. This, this is not a book about Penobscot, um, what it means to be Penobscot. This is about what it means for certain Penobscot people to try to survive based off the trauma that they de- they, they are dealing with, and the trauma that the Penobscot, you know, nation and other indigenous communities have had to deal with um, right. from the consequences of colonialism. And so this is about a couple of people. And I always tell people I'm like waiting, you know, for, you know, another Penobscot person to come out with, you know, a book that, you know, blows mine out of the water and is like, here is a, here is, you know, a, here is a story we need, you know, here is an antithesis to Night of the Living Reds, Right. And because the more books we get like that, the more we get an objective picture of, um, you know, a community, but also what it means to be human. And so for me, you know, I, you know, I chose to focus on these dark things because they were all around me and they were things I dealt with. They were things I grew up with. um, They were things I laughed at, you know, that my family laughed at. And Mm -hmm. it was like, I'm just going to go for it. You know, if people are like, you know, just another book by a native author with a bunch of alcoholism and drug addiction Mm -hmm. you know my you know what i would say is like you've you've misread the book i mean you can read it that way certainly but i think you miss a valuable some some valuable stuff if you choose to look at it that way um but at the end of the day you know that these things are stereotypical tropes in native fiction it's still true like that's the thing about stereotypes is it's not it's not that stereotypes are false it's just that they're not the full picture of something um and here is a full picture of you know mike's my experiences in some ways. I'm in pretty open and transparent about stuff. So I'm just right. kind of like, well, whatever. I'm gonna put it out there. If people get mad, they get mad.
0: <laughs> yeah, I also think, you know, anyone who's sort of getting head up about representational politics in literature or film or whatever, it makes me a little batty because honestly, those are labels that are not that we're not choosing. They're being applied to us. And sometimes they're being applied to us by Like model minority, and people who've listened to the show before have heard me do my thing about the model minority myth, and it makes me bananas. It makes me completely bananas. And so I love the idea that you're just like, I'm telling stories. Here's the truth. Here's not the truth. And I mean, Phyllis and and David, when they're using together, I mean, they're kind of funny. But they're also kind of very Dennis Johnson at the same time, too. And I mean, there have been comparisons made to you and, and Johnson's work, and I love that dude. I love that dude. And I remember loving that dude from the minute I first read him. But I, I think we have a responsibility to the humanity. And I think you do that really well in this book. And I mean, the fact that Phyllis and David can be so funny when they're using, I'm like, these guys, uh, this is like waiting for Godot only in an apartment in Maine. Like, these guys have no... <laughs> they're adorable, but they have... Now, there are other people who would say there's nothing funny about addiction. There's nothing adorable about these two guys. I mean we have seen but i'm sorry it's really funny when fellas decides he's still gonna rob the museum this guy can barely tie his shoes and he's convinced (laughs) that he's gonna like fellas thinks he lives in a heist movie
1: he can't tie his (laughs)
0: shoes like i'm sorry that's really funny that's a new way of looking at poverty that's a new way of looking at you know addiction and where you go like all of this it's in the details right It also feels like a really New England book to me. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts, but like there's some stuff like the dark humor. Like we do that throughout New England. It's something we all sort of cling to. And the people who don't cling to it, well, they're not as much fun. They're just kind of scary and they stand on hills and smite people and we just (laughs) kind of run. And I mean, I grew up being dragged to Plymouth Plantation every year for school. I played um, Sarah Alden, Priscilla Alden. I don't know. They made the Asian American kid play a very tall pilgrim because they were like, "Okay, we (laughs) know. Here's the kid who integrated the school. What do we do with her? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in a little (laughs) pilgrim. Oh, New England, we have so many stories about you. But I do want to talk about colonialism and the legacy, because I think it's really easy for us as Americans to point to what we've done and say, oh, I don't know Asia, you know, the Philippines. We do this a lot. America has done some stuff in Central America that we need to really look at. But we don't think of colonialism in terms of what has happened on reservations. And your work digs in hard.
1: You know, I think Native fiction needs stories about need the cowboy and Indian narratives Mm -hmm. still like I like I feel like those still need to exist because we need to confront the micro colonialism as it affects Indian country in a broad way but we need to also think about the way colonialism is affecting specific individual tribes and have to have that written about and I mean Night of the Living Reds isn't necessarily you know a political book by any means right it doesn't choose to focus or a directly political book, so to speak, like it's not focusing on like the Indian main Indian claims settlement act of 1980, you know, it's, it's not, you know, pointing to specific, you know, um, legal Supreme court precedents or anything like that. It's dealing with, you know, how colonialism has put these people in these certain positions, you know, of being, you know, poor, you know, you know, using, uh, drugs, you know, substance abuse issues, all of that stuff. And for me, you know, I began to realize, you know, the more I read indigenous fiction, I was like, we're not talking about the ways we have adopted the attitudes of, of colonizers. Like, we're not talking about the ways that we are mistreating one another as learned things from Mm -hmm. Western society. And I didn't really see that until Tommy Orange's book came out. And I was like, yes, I was like, somebody finally did it. I read that book, you know, and and the ending of There, There, you know, it's this, you know, everybody, indigenous on indigenous, right? And and it's horrifying with Burn, you know, there's that line, you know, natives damning natives. I want us to begin looking at the ways we treat each other um, in indigenous communities, but also in non-indigenous communities as well we can't fix a larger problem if the machine we're using has problems of itself, right? I don't mean to refer to humans as machine, but I think the metaphor works here. Um,
0: but the system, I mean, the system,
1: the system yeah.
0: and it is a system that impacts all of us, but it is a system. It's a system of belief. It's a system of, it's a structural thing.
1: You know, I always come back to was it the Audrey Lord quote, master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Right. And it's like, For indigenous communities, like we need to decolonize, we need to decolonize, but also revitalize our practices about dealing with each other and, you know, uh, working with each other. Mm -hmm. Because only then will we find a tool set that will actually work. That's what I aim to do with my work is I aim to not ignore neglect colonialism um, as it impacts the tribe, but also thinking about the ways it spreads and in infects the tribe and you know the individuals um like even myself like i've had to decolonize my mind and i'm still decolonizing my mind and we all have to do that um and so that's why the book i think you know for for colonization like has to look inward at the community um and that can be hard to do because it can it, it forces us to accept when we're wrong um, and it forces us to, you know, grow, especially for people who have been through so much. It's like, damn, you know, now we have to do even more work. That's just the horrible thing about colonialism in general. It just makes everything that much harder to, to fix.
0: And it's also not something that just happens to other people. Like, it's not something that gets done to people outside of the States. The fact that we actively choose to do it to ourselves and to each other is the thing where I'm like, hi, can we talk about this? Because and that for me is where literature and, you know, books in general, it's poetry. I mean, Joy Harjo. Hi. Uh-huh. Joy Harjo. There's so much great. Leslie Marmon-Silco. I mean, James Welch, Louise Erdrich, Tommy Orange. The kinetic energy of There, There is still, I love, it feels like mm. an LA gangster novel. And I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. We're talking about indigenous people in the Bay Area. And I'm a part-time Angelina, so I'm biased towards Los Angeles anyway. But it feels like a very of the moment, kinetic kind of story where you're just like, oh yeah, okay, I'm here. And it feels really sort of modern and new. And you're doing a similar thing though, because the energy changes story to story, moment to moment, a sweat lodge pops up in a junkyard. I love that. That feels so main to me. That feels so, I mean, you're writing about class though, in a new way. Because the way you slide in these details, I think is really important. I mean, Things like, you know, mom is looking for money because mom's not having a good go of it. And maybe dad's sending money and money's not always getting to David. You know, and again, it's not that mom doesn't love David. It's just she doesn't have a job. And so far as we can tell, there are no benefits. So, you know, she's dependent on support payments from her ex-husband. Like that to me is beans of Egypt, main level of poverty. I mean, we're talking about, you know, it's not choosing between different brands at the grocery store. It's can I go to the grocery store? Yeah. Can I even buy something? And I think these are conversations that we have to have and how they relate to colonialism. It's just really good that you did it in beautiful short stories as opposed to, you know, sort of really aggressive nonfiction, which has its place in the world, but it's harder to turn away when you've got someone telling you a really good story.
1: I want to tell stories. Like I, I hate the whole, like don't tell show Montreal because like, it's it's not like, it's not true, but it has its like moments. Like, you know, when the reader finishes something of mine, like I want them to feel as if it's something they had experienced, um, as if it's like a memory for mm-hmm. them. Because like, for me, that's always been like the best stuff. And like, that can be so hard to do if you take a very overhead look at like systemic issues and you like speak directly to them. Um, I don't know if I'm talented enough to do that. Like I've read writers who do that and they get mm-hmm. away with it really, really well. Um, but for me, every time I've tried, I've always felt myself, you know, becoming flat, you know, monotonous. And so I've had to do it the other way. Um, and I, I just love it. I love it that way. And when writers can nail it, you know, as, as telling, I'm like, do it again. <laughs> you know, I like, keep doing, you know, what you're doing.
0: Before I let you go, because also I knew this would happen. I knew we would be running up on our time. Who have you been reading? We see the comparisons to you and Dennis Johnson and Tommy Orange and Louise Erdrich and Alice Munro, which I love, and Anthony Visena So, who did that great collection after parties. But who have you been reading? Who are some of the people you turned to? How did we get here with Morgan Talty and Night of the Living Rise?
1: I mean, every indigenous author you can throw on there, and I'll yeah, even yeah. name some, some, new, some new ones. You know, there's Chelsea T. Hicks, whose debut collection, A Calm and Normal Heart, is just beautiful beautiful. Brandon Hobson, of course, yeah. um, you know, where the dead sit talking, they're removed as that in, in his earlier work. I read those a lot. Um, I read a lot of short fiction, you know, pick a best American, look through those, um, you know, Raymond Carver. I, I, I love, I recently read a book uh, by Allegra Hyde, uh, called the last catastrophe. Uh, very, 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 very good. And I'm so, I'm so excited for that mm-hmm. to come out. There's also another book, um, coming out. That's written by, uh, an indigenous writer named Amanda Peters, and it's called um, "The Berry Picker." I think it's coming out through Catapult, um, and it's oh, set in game. Great. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. I keep telling people I'm going to make a list of like books and stuff, um, and I ha- and I have to do that. I have to keep up to my promise.
0: We will at some point. I'm also going to throw in Stephen Graham Jones, who we quite like. Around yeah. those parts. Um, yep. Although I can't read his stuff with the lights off. Like I need to make sure <laughs> that the door is locked. I'm kind of a baby about that stuff. There's so much horror in the world where I'm like, "Can I have my like horror and literature in tiny doses, please?" And you know, it's it's also possibly growing up in a house that was surrounded by woods and you know, yeah. you know when stuff knocks on the window and you're like, "What just happened?"
1: Yeah, yeah. He he gave me a lot of courage to be very specific, mm-hmm. um, and very sort of like focused on specific traumatic things, you know, yeah. like D with the car and said, yeah. you know, like those types of things. Like I, I learned a lot from his, his writing. I love his work.
0: And if you're trying to show us how D becomes D and even to a certain extent, how mom becomes mom or Paige becomes page. Like, I mean, D, obviously you see the biggest transition in him, but everyone here has an arc and, you know, the idea that there's before and there's after. It, that's a really powerful moment in literature, whether it's short stories or a novel. I mean, before and after that, that hinge, Jhumpa Lahiri does it really, really well. Yeah. It's just like, you're sitting in that moment and all of a sudden you feel it change. And sometimes it is the smallest thing in the world and you're just like, oh no, that's it. Yeah. That's the moment. There's a lot of that here too, I think. Um, But what's next? Are you going to pick? Are you going to decide that it's short stories or a novel? Or are you just going to be like, I'm going to write the thing? and see what happens
1: um so it is a novel that will be out in 2024 okay from tin house oh yay yeah i don't know if i just like blew the lid off of anything because it hasn't been announced yet but um yeah i think um,
0: tin house will forgive you
1: yeah i think they will
0: (laughs) okay that is super exciting though morgan talty thank you so much For Night of the Living Res, it was great to see you on Port Over, and hopefully we get to see you offline at some point.
1: (laughs) Me too. I I hope so.
2: Hello, readers, and welcome to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you to pick up when you come in for your copy of Night of the Living Res by Morgan Talty. I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And we are coming to you from my new home store in Florence, Kentucky. Mark decided to come visit, so um, if it's okay with you, I'm going to get started. Yeah, please do. Wonderful. Thank you. So the book that I thought of to go along with this is a new book. Also, um, it's My Monticello by Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. Uh, This book came out earlier this year, and it is a debut collection of short stories that explores what it means to live in a world that is both home and not. There are five short stories and one novella, and they all deal with racism. Um, Some of the other issues that are explored um, are violence, poverty, gender discrimination, family expectations, uh, and more. It is a powerful collection. Uh, The title novella, which is the last uh, story in the collection, tells of a future after the upheaval, which was basically it's a series of environmental disasters and civil unrest where Bands of very violent and armed white supremacists are roaming the country, attempting to clear out the trash. It is disturbing. Some of the trash uh, is a a group of people who have banded together and they are led by the descendant, a young descendant of uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And they go and hide out in Monticello. It's a good one. Um, there is another story that tells of a woman who's trying to escape her heritage. Um, but for me, the most powerful one uh, is actually the first story, and it is called Control Negro. It's written as a letter from a Black college professor to his son. It will wreck you. It's told kind of in a satirical way. There's a wit to it. So you you kind of grin a little bit occasionally, but the truth of it hurts. Um, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a hard one, but it's so good. And um, for honestly, for a little treat, get the audio version. LeVar Burton reads this letter and uh, I love It's just, it's so good. Um, I really, I can't speak highly enough about this collection. It is so good and it's her debut. So I'm so excited to see what else she will uh, bring out. But in the meantime, please pick up My Monticello by Jocelyn Nicole Johnson.
3: Mark, what do you have? Nice pick. You know I love a book that will destroy me. Yes. Yes, please. (laughs) So I chose something um, in more of a classic vibe. Mm. When I was thinking about Morgan Telty, when I was thinking about the way that he writes, um, he was giving me some Hemingway kind of vibes. And when I thought about young David, the main character in Telty's stories, I thought a lot about, Uh, uh, Nick Adams. So I think the Nick Adams stories by Ernest Hemingway is a really interesting companion that you could pick up with this book. It's a collection that charts essentially the life of the title character, Nick. Um, And it mirrors Ernest Hemingway's life um, in many, many ways. You follow Nick as a young boy observing the adults in his life, Uh, You follow him as a soldier trying to survive with his soul intact. You follow him as an author. You follow him as a parent. Um, The stories are really well done. The writing is tender and masculine. And I think that Nick's observations have a lot of resonance that really can... Be picked up now if you've never read a Hemingway before this is a great place to start um it's a it's a really good way to just take a bite out of his writing style and again i think it's a, an interesting companion to go uh with Morgan Telty because i think Telty is so incredibly talented that i i want him to write all of the things forever um, so in the meantime, uh, pick up the Nick Adams stories by Ernest Hemingway.
2: Oh, good choice. And I, I've i actually never read the Nick Adams stories. So Might as well. I think this is something I'm adding to my TBR now. Throw it in the pile. <laughs> um, so that is all that we have for you today. Um, thank you for watching and tuning in. When you have a chance, please rate and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Yes, please. Um, you can follow us always at Barnes & Noble. Um, I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. Um, you can follow me and my home store now at BM Florence.
3: And you can follow my home store, formerly Becky's, oh. at BN Westchester. Uh, thank you so much, everybody.
2: Thank you. Yeah, happy and reading. Happy reading. Bye.
3: Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show
1: is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and view us wherever you listen to podcasts.